if you would, uh, be turning in your Bibles actually to Psalm 50. We're going to preach on Psalm 51, but Psalm 50 is going to help give us a little bit more context. Uh, and as you're turning there, I just want to remind you what this series is. Uh, it is the Missio Dei, which is the mission of God in the book of Psalms. And so far, what we've seen from Psalm 2, which we know is an introductory companion to Psalm 1, which sets the whole tone for the book of the Psalms, is that God's intent is to have a king that will rule over all and that the nations will be drawn to that king in fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. That he, he is going to set up that king and that king will do his bidding. And we know that king to be Jesus. And then we heard from Psalm 72 uh, that, uh, that the reign of that king would be marked uh, by some things in particular. That first and foremost, justice and righteousness would serve as the foundation for that kingdom. And that one of the great uh, outworkings of that justice and righteousness is that king's care for those at the margins. And that we who are under the reign of that king would also uh, seek to be founded upon justice and righteousness and and that it would also be an outworking of our worship, that our ethics would be shaped by our worship of that king, and that we too would care about those at the margins. And we were reminded that the most impoverished of all are those who don't know Jesus, and who are the, that is the furthest and most marginalized that you can possibly be. Now, that's, that has spiritual and tangible implications. We also know that there are those who are under extreme physical poverty in this world, and they too deserve our attention, right? And so what we're going to see this morning is that the mission of God uh, also is displayed in the Psalms in that you are redeemed for a purpose. And that a big part of your redemption is to share your story with others. And that's why the title of the sermon is A Truth Worth Sharing. And so we're going to talk a little bit about that, uh, and, and actually David really helps give us some contours, because I think a lot of times when we share our story, and I have certainly been guilty of this, if you listen to the story, you would think that the main character, the great hero of said story, was the person telling the story. That God really was kind of somehow just working in the background, and, and really what God was doing is just pulling back the, the, the curtain so that you all could see how great I really am, because I've been through some stuff. And so oftentimes what we end up doing is sharing these kind of testimonies that are really just about us magnifying our sin, and we'll kind of throw God in on the backside and kind of try to have him clean it up, if you will. Um, it's almost a way of kind of getting away with telling a dirty joke in the sermon or something. And so you just try to clean it up on the back end, and that's just not the way it's to be done. In fact, the glorification of God should be from the start, it should be the middle, and it should be the end, Right? That's what David's going to show us from Psalm 51. But before we get to Psalm 51, we need some context. Um, and so uh, hang on for just a second. Uh, this will be uh, uh, one of my lengthy introductions that some of you appreciate. Some of you are yet, you will someday appreciate. Uh, <laughs> so the, the context for Psalm 51 is actually Psalm 50. And this is the beauty of the construction of the Psalms. And so what's happening in Psalm 50, and I'm, I'm going to read that for us, but what I want you to pay attention to is what God is saying to the people. In fact, it is very much a call and response. 50 is the call, 51 is the response, and that means a lot to how we understand the great gravity of Psalm 51 and what's really being said here. So let me read Psalm 50 for you. So if you would, give your attention to the reading of God's Word. This is Psalm 50. A psalm of Asaph, the mighty one, God the Lord, speaks and summons the earth. That's really important. He summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him, a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me my faithful ones who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Hear, O my people, and I will speak, O Israel. I will testify against you. I am God, your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. 
I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. And and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. But to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant upon your lips? For you hate discipline, and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you are pleased with him, and you keep company with adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil, and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done, and I have been silent. You thought that I was one like yourself, but now... I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. Mark this, then. You are you who forget God, lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Now, why did I just read all that? And are we going to get two sermons for the price of one, for the price of lunch or whatever. No, I, I can't go through all this, but what I want you to see is this is God summoning the earth to him. And notice he calls those who are faithful and righteous and he commends them and says, call on me in the day of trouble. I love you. I will take care of you. And to the ones who don't love him, he actually says, repent. Notice what he says. He says, I lay this charge before you. Judgment is not yet come. Though he is a consuming fire and though a tempest burns all around him, what he's saying is give a sacrifice of thanksgiving. Don't give me just silly religious practices. I don't need them. I don't eat, uh, I don't eat goats and blood. I don't eat that stuff. That's really, remember, for those of you who were here when we talked about, that was for our senses. Remember, their services would have been much more sensory uh, involved, right? We go slaughtering enough bulls and goats to cover your sins, though I know they're probably less than some of the churches in this area. Uh, it would have smelled to high heaven in here, and it would have been awful, and it would have been, and we would have been sickened, at least with the cost of our sin. And yet, what he says to them is, that's, that's not for me, that's for you. But what I want from you is the sacrifice of thanksgiving. Thanksgiving for what? Having been created, provided for, and forgiven. So here is the summons or the call, if you will. So notice that Psalm 51 follows. Who's the first to step forward with his hand raised high, covered in blood, and say, give me mercy, O God? David the king, the king of all of Israel, for whom God has covenanted with and has protected, and it is he who comes first. What a beautiful picture of true leadership that he would say, before any in my kingdom come forward, let me raise my hand high first and beg the mercy of our God. Now, if that were all that was to the story, that would even be plenty, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it be nice if we had leaders who went first on any decision that they made, right? But let's talk about what David did that caused the pinning of Psalm 51. Now, again, I don't have time to go into the whole story, and I'd encourage you to read it, but the story begins in 2 Samuel 11. And what you've got to know is that the covenant was made in 2 Samuel 7 and had not been covenanted all that long. And yet David was where he shouldn't have been. Instead of him going first and being with his men, as kings are supposed to do going out to war in the springtime, he is lounging around bored. And so he wanders up to the top roof and he looks out upon his kingdom and what does he see? But he sees a woman bathing. Her name is Bathsheba. As he looks upon her, lust begins to grow and unfurl in his heart. Instead of him taking it to the Lord as he should have first, Instead, what he did is he turned to his servants and said, go get me that woman. And so they did. If you read the text, it says they went and got her. Didn't ask her. It was a request, you see. 
she's brought in and he lay with her. And she's pregnant by this one interaction. And so then he discovers that her husband is a man named Uriah. And what's important about this is that Uriah was probably one of the finest men in all of his army based on how he responds to what David tries to trick him into. And so David, in an effort to deal with his lust and adultery and his violation of several commandments so far, tries to trick Uriah into sleeping with his wife so that this child would seem to be Uriah's child. But guess what Uriah does? Uriah says, I... If, if my brothers sleep in tents on the battlefield and the ark is not where it should be, I cannot take pleasure in anything. And he sleeps outside as his brothers would. He's a great soldier. And so David scratches his head and goes, all right, that didn't work. Brings him in, gets him drunk, and hopes in some way that he'll, as drunk men are wont to do, stumble and seek other pastures. And what does Uriah do? Again, he says, no, I cannot do what you're, what, what's going on here. I am a soldier to the core. And so David says, finally, oh, now I understand what it's going to take. And he sends a message to a man named Joab who's in charge of the army. And he says, Joab, I want you to send Uriah to the thickest, hottest, most awful part of the fight. And once he gets engaged, I want you to pull back and let him die. So now Joab is in on the sin of David. Now David has lied, he has coveted, he has, uh, he has committed adultery, he has stolen, he has forsaken his God, he has taken the name of the Lord in vain as king. So Joab does exactly what David requests. He gets Uriah and not, here's what's really important because the text says this and don't miss this, Uriah not, is not the only one who dies. There's a number of other soldiers that we don't know their names. We don't know how their families suffered as a result of this. But, but Uriah was not the only one who perished that day. So Joab does, in fact, put Uriah out in front. Now, why do you think those other men died? Because they, they were tight with Uriah. They were not going to leave him. So they died too. And so Joab sends back to the king. Essentially, the deed is done. And there's a little more explanation in there. And so David then brings Bathsheba into his house claim as his own and the book uh, or the chapter 11 ends with these words and the Lord was displeased with David so chapter 12 opens with Nathan the prophet having the courage to come to David and he tells him this story about a man who comes and steals another man's not wife here's what's really important not wife sheep just steals a farm animal for some of you who have farms and have had animals perish in the way. Steals is just a sheep. And David is angry and says, that man should be put to death. And Nathan says, you are that man. And you didn't just steal a sheep. You stole a wife. And you stole a man's life. And you've stolen the covenant for your own doing. And it's going to cost you. And he says these words. He says, the sword will never depart from your house. He goes on to say that God is completely displeased. and It's going to cost him that child in Bathsheba's womb. That will be the cost. And David, if you remember, is broken. And they don't know if he's going to be able to recover. And he worships. Uh, he finally, when his grief is fulfilled, he gets up and he worships. Now somewhere in there he penned Psalm 51. And somewhere in there, he, he understood that the king must be the one to repent first and in some way displayed that he is, in fact, still a king after God's own heart, even though he's committed one of the greatest covenant uh, 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 sins that has been committed north of what Abram did with Hagar and Ishmael. And so he believes that he's still loved. But the consequence doesn't just end with the death of the child because if you keep reading, chapter 13 follows with the story of Amnon and Tamar, which gives rise to a son who turns on his father named Absalom. And Absalom rends the kingdom in half with his anger and his ferocity. And David is sent on the run. And here's what's really important. Who is it that kills Absalom even though David does not want him to die? Joab. Why did Joab do it? 
Because Joab knew this king is a liar, he's an adulterer, he's a murderer, and not to be trusted. I will take matters into my own hands. So see, what David unleashed on the kingdom was a sword against his own house. And so that's really important that we know all of that as we read Psalm 51, that these words are not spoken by someone who had stubbed their toe and cussed. This is not spoken by someone who uh, forgot to do his devotions one Tuesday morning. This is spoken by one who broke, in essence, in one moment, at least nine of the Ten Commandments. I doubt, he probably took a Sabbath or two off, too, by the way. I don't know that he showed up until after the grief was done. He does finally, but I seriously doubt he did. And so it's important to recognize that these are words uttered by one of the worst covenant breakers in all of history. So let the gravity of these words from Psalm 51 sink into your soul because the depth of his sin cannot in any way, shape, nor form eclipse the heights of the mercy of our God. And so when we talk about which way do you run, this, this is why you can run really but one way, and that is to the throne of grace because God has loved us so deeply. I seriously doubt any of you has come close to the covenant breaking of David the king. And yet your sin is just as noxious before the throne. It casts you just as far from the Lord our God and you are brought the same distance back in the person and work of Christ and the mercy of God himself. The beauty that the sword would never depart from David's house. And I'm gonna jump ahead here. Remember that sword was buried to the hilt in the person of Christ. And there it ended. It was paid for. So that sword doesn't continue this day. Amen? And so David's sin ultimately does not have the final say, and therefore there's no way that yours can. No way that yours can. If, if you are uh, repentant, as you will see David be, and if you are willing to serve the Lord your God, I love the way in the song, Come Ye Souls by Sin Afflicted, it said that his commandments become our happy choice. They may say, well, I mean, I still eat shrimp. <laughs> I mean, I, don't, I ain't keeping that one. We don't have to because uh, Acts chapter 10 lets you off the old shrimp hook, as it turns out. So enjoy. Uh, but the rest of them, you can't go murdering and stealing someone's wife. You can't go forsaking your own covenant with your wife or someone else's wife. You can't go lying and cheating and taking the Lord's name in vain and forsaking the Sabbath. You just can't because all of those things are not merely laws. They are ethics shaping realities. And something that we should recognize helps make us into the Lord's image like nothing else in this world. So there ends for the most part the introduction. But I do have a question for you. Um, what are you most ashamed of? Now, don't yell it out because we have children in here. But every one of us has something that haunts us, that comes up every now and again. Even those of you who are fairly young, you've got something already that you're probably fairly ashamed of and you don't like talking about. And the question after that, though, is what impact had, has this shame had upon you? I know for me, the impact that it had was, uh, for a long, long time, is, is uh, and I know some of you may be like, eh. I almost didn't go into ministry at all because I, I would read the passage about David when David longed to build the temple for the Lord, the house of the Lord, and God said to him, you've got too much innocent blood upon your hands. So how can one uh, actually serve over the house of the Lord as church is with innocent blood upon his hands? And he may be the tape's running, you're like, did Cameron kill someone? <laughs> I'll leave that up for you to find out. Uh, <laughs> at least in my heart I have. Uh, and so, um, so, so, you know, I mean, it, it, it's, it does, it haunts us in the dark. In fact, I said one of the craziest things, I've, I've shared this with you guys before, to Susan. Susan was sitting next to me on the couch, we were in Macon. I remember, it was a flashbulb moment, and I turned, and I, sometimes I like to just, I, not anymore, I've, I, I've gotten better at this, I think. But I like to just say the craziest, most cynical thing and see who will be left standing. And so she, you're like, no, you still do that. Uh, but Susan, uh, 
I turned to Susan. I said, Susan, if you knew the darkness that sat next to you, you would run as far as you could possibly run to get away from me, which is so after school dramatic, by the way. I'm not even close. Like, as long as Hitler's in history, I, I got nothing. Uh, I'm not that bad. And, and historically now, but before the throne's different. And then I turned to her and I said, and because you don't run, it makes me question your intelligence. Oh. <laughs> oh. Again, you know, cue the after-school music. Like, we should have cut to commercial, so you guys are wondering what's going on. And like, and if you buy this toothpaste, you'll have a great life. And then we're back to the after-school. And Susan, fortunately, has this great way about her. Uh, she goes, you're the idiot, and gets up and goes in the kitchen. <laughs> and so praise God for, for Susan that she, too, is not the emotional mess that I sometimes try to pretend to be. But we all have things we're deeply ashamed of, and, and, there's, and actually we're constantly trying to cut ourselves off from the banquet, aren't we? We're constantly trying to cut ourselves off from God's grace and God's mercy as if you were the one who ought to be able to decide, you and all of your limitedness. And so praise God that he too says with great affection, no, you're the idiot, but I love you, and you're my child, and I can redeem your idiotness uh, into something very valuable. So don't let your shame today haunt you and keep you from God's goodness. Now, that, that doesn't mean that you don't deal with it either, by the way. There are consequences, so please hear that. Right? David's sin spans the whole rest of the Bible. Everything Robbie's going to talk about, I probably stole Robbie's thunder for the Sunday school class. Everything he's going to talk about is, is a direct result of David's putting the sword to himself. The book of Kings is, is dreary and dour because the sword did not depart from the house of David. The kingdom is rent in two, north and south kingdom, because of all of this. But listen at David's words, if you would, as he steps into Psalm 51. Here's the heading. It says, to the choir master. So what's so amazing about this is this was a hymn. We sang a version of it. That was the very first song. God be merciful to me comes directly from Psalm 51. And so that's, you know, that's to be appreciated. But that he would have his repentance and sin turned into worship is crazy to me. But beautiful at the same time. And it means he trusted the Lord as God. He says, to the choir master, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. And uphold me with a willing spirit. So notice where David begins and what he appeals to. He appeals to the character and the attributes of God. It's as if he is reading Exodus 34, 6, and 7 almost, right? He's appealing to the covenant love of the Lord his God. He is not saying, you owe me anything. Now, you got to remember who he is. There is a Davidic covenant. There's a sense in which he could say, God, it behooves you. Since you chose me as king, you picked me. I didn't pick you. For you, you ought to forgive me because you picked me. And he doesn't say that. He says, no, it is because of your mercy. It is because of your very character, your covenant love that I can come to you and ask for these things to be blotted out, for this to be removed. And notice what he doesn't ask for. He doesn't ask for merely the external, right? Just take away the consequences. Just make it as if it never happened. Can we just go back to the way that it was? Can they? No. It's too far gone. No going back. 
But what he's most concerned about is his own interior. Now, why would that be the case? Because he knows that we are broken from within, which is why he cites uh, this, that he is born in sin. The whole issue of original sin is being invoked here. So he's saying, there is nothing about me that can make an excuse for what I have done. Now, how many of you repent like that? How many of you, your repentance is, there is zero excuse for any of this? I, I can tell you, I don't know that I've ever repented like that. I always have a but, right? We always are like, hey, I, I'm really sorry, but you... I'm really sorry, but you did this. And I'm really sorry, but I grew up in a divorced home. I'm really sorry, but my mom was a drug addict and overdose. I'm really sorry, but I've got this really rough background. And Susan, again, is very great at saying, those are not excuses for your bad behavior in the present. None. And they're not excuses for you either. Because why? Why? Because of who God is and what he's made it possible for us to be and do, right? So that we wouldn't be defined by these things, but yet we keep trying to put ourselves back under the curse of the things that we've done because it's the devil we know. There's something very comfortable and familiar about our sin, right? There's something very comfortable and familiar about not having to live up to any of this stuff, right? And not having to say that God's, because I'm sure many of you saying God's commandments are a happy choice, and you're like, no, they're not. Some of you heard me read about the joy of salvation. You said, no, I, 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 don't, I don't feel that today. And that's honest, and it's true. But the way out of those circumstances and situations is to meditate upon and return again to the very person and work of our God, who, who displays that, remember, from our Christmas series and Advent, through the person and work of Christ himself, the very word made flesh, the very attributes of God on display for all to see. And so here, David is coming and and using no part of his excuses, using no part of his position, and, and putting himself in full submission to God. And notice what he says, your word, your judgment is blameless and just. So what is he saying there? He's saying, whatever you decide to do is right. So if God had chosen to kill him on the spot and blot him out of history, God would have been just. But God doesn't. Just as he has not yet done with you, you still have breath in your lungs, right? Despite all the mistakes you've made. And for some of us, you may be thinking, I don't, there's not a whole lot of depth to my sin. Well, let me just tell you, you hit pretty close to bottom when you thought that because that's just pride, and pride is the worst of all, actually. And for you who think you are better than the ones who have cheated on their wives or you think you're better than the ones who've had an abortion or you think you're better than the ones who have uh, destroyed their bodies through addiction or you think you're better than the ones who've made terrible decisions in terms of those whom they have yoked themselves to physically over and over and over again, woe be unto you. It is you who also with the same words that are in David's mouth should come before the throne and plead for God's mercy and ask the Lord to blot out your transgressions as he is faithful to do because you were born in sin. It is from within, not just from without. It's not just that you can clean up the external and think you've accomplished much of anything at all. That is what's within your power. Instead, we need cleansing all the way down, which is why it's always gonna be a supernatural problem, right? We're always going to need the Spirit. We're always going to need the things of God, the means of grace, which is what David is appealing to. And he recognizes the depths of his sin, but even more, he's appealing to the heights of God's mercy, which far, far, far outpace how far we have fallen. And praise God. And as he goes on, he asks him to purge him with hyssop, which is just calling back to the Exodus. You know, they used hyssop to mark the door with the blood from the lamb so that they would be passed over. He's saying, mark me with the blood of the lamb. Pass over me, in essence. He longs to be whiter than snow, as we have read from Isaiah 1 a few weeks ago. He longs to hear joy and gladness. See, this is what's so, so crazy about what David's saying, is he's not saying just 
just get it back to okay, which some of us would take, by the way. Some of us would just take neutral over kind of the haunting of our shame and our guilt. I don't know what just flew by, but I hope it's not mean. Uh, all right, focus back this way. That's just Satan and a bug. Uh, and so, and so, uh, so he is saying, he's saying, I'm, it's not just that I want neutral. I don't want everything to just kind of get back. I want joy. I want gladness. I want joy in my salvation. Too often, we don't cry out for that. We don't long for that. We just want God to basically kind of leave us alone. We just want the preacher to hurry up and get done. We just don't, we don't want to hear any of this. We've got our fingers in our ears or our fingers in our eyes, and we just, we don't want to sense any of this. And yet, the Lord will not let us. He pushes past all that, doesn't he? And he offers to us his mercy and his grace And in this, he can create in us a clean heart. Notice the language that David is using. He's asking for total renewal. He's asking for the creator of the universe to make something new and recognize how many times in the Old Testament, Jeremiah, Ezekiel in particular, where the heart is referred to, that it's transformed from the heart of stone to the heart of flesh. Do you believe that God can do that this morning? Or... Are you so obstinate? Do you think that you are such a superman or woman that the granite of your heart cannot be penetrated by this, the creator God? Woe be unto you if that's what you believe. You need to repent and call on God's mercy and cry out for joy and salvation and that the heart of stone would be turned into a heart of flesh. I've been where you are, by the way. If I'm sitting next to my wife saying, if you knew the darkness that was sitting next to you, like being all dramatic, you don't think I haven't tried that? In fact, for 10 years of my Christianity, I thought it would be awesome to kind of walk the same path. That bug, I'm not going to uh, To walk the same path as the guy who wrote the book, Farewell to God, Templeton, right? I didn't really think it would be awesome, but I was all kind of caught up in that ridiculous philosophical nonsense that would allow me to, like Nietzsche, unchain myself so I could drift, right? As he talks in the parable of the gay science, which is not a reference to sexuality, by the way. And he says, basically, if we get rid of God, basically that we have untethered ourselves from everything, and that thus, the philosophy known as nihilism, all is nothing. Oh, great. Thank you, Frederick. That sounds awesome, because I can, I can really get behind that. Right? It's like the lyric in one of your kids' favorite songs. If there was a color darker than black, I'd wear it. Okay. Duly noted. We're so dramatic, aren't we? We're just so ridiculous. We got to laugh at ourselves at some point because this is ridiculous. The stuff we come up with and God's going, I just want to love you and I want you to have joy in me. And all the time, we're like, no, 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 no. I want sorrow. Make it darker. As, as Leonard Cohen, before he died, his album is I Want It Even Darker, or some version of that, which I love that record, and I shouldn't. Uh, but anyway, here's what John Calvin says, who's better than Leonard Cohen. In the commencement of the psalm, having his eyes directed to the heinousness of his guilt, David encourages himself to hope for pardon by considering the infinite mercy of God. So when you, again, what did Calvin just say? He said that basically when David was confronted with how bad his sin was, he didn't just continue to massage and wallow in it. He didn't, as so many of us do. Instead, David turned to the heights of God's mercy and appealed there knowing that the heinousness of his sin was not near enough to eclipse the cross. And would that we would understand that, because for many of you, I can tell you, so much of what you are most interested in is wallowing. And everything that is put in front of you, you strike down and you push aside as if there's no wisdom outside of your little controlled world. And there is, and may you have joy in your salvation, but let me tell you something else. It may take time. And that's the thing we also don't like. It may take cultivation, the other thing we don't like. It may take work. Not works unto salvation, work to to be able to enjoy your salvation. 
which is what David is doing. He's doing the hard work, right? If you read the story, David doesn't just pray this and everything gets okay. No. Everything actually gets harder. And he has to work through a ton of things, and it's the loss of his kingdom and family. And I mean, he does the census and causes all kinds of problems. I mean, it doesn't, it's a mess, even still. And yet he can continue because he knows this to be true, that that creating in him a clean heart sometimes is an incredibly painful process. It just is, isn't it? And sometimes we don't like being confronted, do we? And sometimes we don't like being told that your sin is heinous, as it turns out. And you are not, in any way, shape, or form, doing what is consistent with what God created you to be and do. And so it will take some work. But let me ask you a good question, worthy of your meditation this Sabbath day, as we often talk about on the Sabbath. You ought to meditate on good things. I know I kind of push you into the abyss every now and again, but, but still, always turn your gaze to the heights of the mercy of God, no matter what I say, because I'm not always right. Um, and you're not either, as it turns out. Uh, and so what are some ways in which the heights of God's mercy have extended further than the depths of your sin? And you need not gloss that in the abstract. You really need to think about that very specifically. For one, at some measure, you're here today. Right? You made the effort, you gussied up, and you got here fairly on time, some of you. Um, and you're here. So in some measure, the heights of God's mercy has in some way eclipsed the depths of your sin today. And you may say, yeah, but you don't know. I'm not listening to you. I don't like what you're saying. And I'm going to go out of here and go say some weird stuff like you say to your wife. Okay, but you ran the risk. You did. It's risky coming in here and hearing the word of the Lord and having the means of grace put out for you. I believe there's something miraculous that happens every single week, whether we feel it or not. And that's not me trying to puff up because my preaching is awesome. I think it lands every time. It could be the Psalms. could be something we read. It could be you talking to someone else. could be you seeing someone that you know. Wow, man, I can't believe they're here today, but they are. And praise God. So what are some ways in which the heights of God's mercy have extended greater than the depths of your sin? And does this bring you joy in your salvation? So much of it is I think we are focused, we spend so much time staring at the brokenness and the heinousness of our sin and the sin of the world that we don't, we don't, we miss so much of the good that's happening. We miss so much of the, so many of the places where God is at work and he is doing amazing and beautiful and wonderful things. He just doesn't care about clicks on Facebook. He doesn't care if you know that his church will not go under in certain places in this world that you've never heard of, right? It's not important that you, you know necessarily all the details, but what's important is that you know that God is good and he loves you and he's working in and through you even now. And so as part of that, notice what David offers and what he recognizes. Let's turn back to the text and finish the psalm. So after David cries out for all this mercy and all this cleansing and all this transformation, he says, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise, for you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. O oh God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. So notice what he says. He says, Lord, give me a story worth sharing. Give me a redemptive story that's worth taking to other people so that they too would know who you are as God. Give me something to give to those who are perishing. So part of the mission of God when he redeems us is so that we would have a story worth sharing. Some of you are in the midst of the writing of the story. Maybe it's not quite time to share. 
So don't hear me as saying everybody has to share. Maybe you're not there right now. But someday, it'll be worth sharing. Many of you are there, and you've got your lamp under a bushel. And we make the mistake that if I don't have some crazy story to tell, then I, who, who cares about someone who grew up loving God their whole days? Well, God does. And that's worth sharing. And sometimes people who don't know how to do that need to be in communication with people who do. We used to, at the rescue mission, um, so often within the addiction community, addicts, they don't want to talk to healthy people. They don't want to talk to anybody that doesn't know about addiction. They'll dismiss you out of hand. You have no wisdom to offer them. And it's like, hang on, time out. You live in a rescue mission, right? I mean, everything's gone to hell in a handbasket. So yeah, you could use a little wisdom. In fact, you've so forsaken your family, you probably would benefit from being around some people who love their family well. So we used to take people, um, kicking and screaming a little bit, that, that did that, right? Uh, and and, and they, they would, and again, some of it, I was able to bridge the gap uh, and help with that stuff. But those, those folks needed to hear from people who had grown up loving their wives and maybe had not used every cuss word under the sun and maybe not, had not done some of these things so that they could help those men see what they could be and do. And we, in the same way, so often, we could use some wisdom from outside of just our, you know, we do the same thing, by the way. We don't want to hear, for those of you that are parents, a lot of times, like, I don't want to hear from somebody who don't have kids. And you're kind of right. <laughs> you're not totally wrong, but sometimes a perspective is a perspective, and the Lord speaks through all kinds of people, right? Or we say, I don't, I don't, want, to, I don't want to be around old, old people. They don't understand anything. They understand a lot, actually and have some real stories to tell and some real wisdom to give, and you ought to pay attention because they are a resource, thus Titus too. And so, so, so often we uh, cut ourselves off from some of the greatest stuff, some of the greatest stories to hear, right? And, and, and we're, we're all hung up on, you know, if, if somebody just, if they haven't just lived this filthy life, then they don't know anything. No, they know more than you actually. More than me, certainly. I'd love to trade some of this stuff in. I'd love not to wake up at two in the morning haunted, as I often do. And I have to remind myself of the mercy of God and that the, the dawn is coming and that that sin, though it, it stabs me in the heart at two in the morning, oftentimes it is not the final say. And I have to preach the gospel to myself because if I wake Susan up, she's not going to be happy about it. She's like, you should know this by now. Go to sleep. No, she's sweeter than me. But notice that David makes it very clear that his salvation is not for him alone. It is to be given away. That the joy of his salvation is to be a thing shared. And every one of you has something to give. Again, I know 80% introvert. You're nervous as you can possibly be right now with this, all this sharing. You're like, we get too much sharing, actually. We get plenty of sharing. And it's not that you have to go out with a bullhorn or you already have at your fingertips, I guarantee you, relationships that you could leverage right now, that you could share more of your story and it would be a real blessing. Whether that's your kids, whether that's family members, it's, it's, it's starting to dawn on me, we really don't know each other very well. I mean, Josh and I are close friends, spend probably more time together than he does with his own family. And I guarantee you, we hadn't heard one one hundredth of the stories between each other. And we talk. Uh, we genuinely, we like each other, right? Yeah. Just want to make sure I don't lie to you guys up front. And so the same is true for y'all. You, you, people that you're close to, you've yet to, you've yet to mine anywhere close. The, the incredible stories and the acts of God and the good things that are available to you that you could share and would be beneficial. We just kind of make assumptions, I think, sometimes. And so David is saying, let me share this. Let me sing this. Let me let, just, just preserve me for your good, O Lord. And he quotes Psalm 50. Notice what he says. He says, you, just as you said in Psalm 50, when you called us to you, you're not, it's not about bulls and goats. It's about a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Is that what you have? And if you don't, Cry out for it. Ask the Lord to give it to you. Again, notice the words. You go asking for something to be broken. What gets implied? Pain. That's okay. You'll survive it and you'll be better for it. I promise you. 
And so here David gives us this beautiful example of what our salvation is for. It's missional. It's part of the mission of God. He redeems in order to display his glory. So how are you sharing those things? Listen to what Charles Simeon says about this passage. How are the world to be instructed in the knowledge of God if those to whom that knowledge is imparted are silent respecting him? We owe a debt. Notice who he says. We owe a debt to them. What our eyes have seen, our ears have heard, and our hands have handled of the word of life, we are bound to declare to them. We are not at liberty to put our light under a bushel, but must make it shine before men that they also may glorify our Father who is in heaven. And I love that Simeon gets that it is our debt to them, that those who are perishing around us, we should long to share this, that we have this join our salvation, our redemptive story, not out of fear or anything else, but out of genuine love and care for those whom the sovereign Lord has placed in our spheres of influence. So what are some creative ways that you could begin to think about sharing the joy of your salvation with others with whom you have a relationship? Think closest to you. Parents, so often, I don't, our children don't know our stories. They don't hardly know anything about us. Now, you got to, you obviously, age-appropriate, right? I mean, you got to go G, PG, PG-13, et cetera. got to figure that out. But, but our, our children need to hear our joy and salvation instead of our just trying to command them to be little moral deists with no foundation on which to work. Your, your neighbors, your coworkers. Again, I used to struggle with this at work. Uh, it's not that I don't work anymore. I almost made it sound like I've, I've retired. I, not, not this job, but when I was a physical therapist. Maybe the Lord had done something amazing at the rescue mission that weekend or somewhere else, and someone would say, hey, how was your weekend? What'd you do? Oh, you know, you know, the thing I did, you know. Yeah. You know how we often talk to each other and we say absolutely nothing, right? The other night. <laughs> Every word, yeah, yeah, you're not saying anything. Uh, and so, so that's what we do, right? We communicate in like guttural clicks and all this kind of stuff. And we're like, huh? Huh? Right? Uh, yeah, I just went out of this. I don't know what just happened. And so often, because I knew the audience, I wouldn't share. I wouldn't say, hey, I, the Lord did this amazing thing at the rescue mission this weekend. Because I was worried that they wouldn't quite get it and they might think I was weird and blah, blah, blah. As if they wouldn't think I was weird going, yeah? Huh? Yeah? Right? Am I right? Patriots. Woo! Uh, okay. And so, so what are some creative ways we can do this? And so I've been where you've been in terms of it's tough to share. And let me just tell you, as a pastor, it's not gotten easier. You know why? Because now they see me coming. Now they're the ones making the guttural noises and trying to backpedal and get away from me because they know this, there's some sort of exchange. There's a thing that has to go down, and it's weird, right? And so, uh, so it's harder for me now. And so, so much of what I will do is equip you to do. I still try, and I still have friends who are not believers, uh, who really are from, from really before, more than even now. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's still possible for me, and I haven't given up on it, but just recognize that more of what I'm doing is equipping you. And so, so think about it. Pray about it. Ask the Lord to give you one opportunity, and think about how if everybody in this room had one opportunity, the kingdom, as you know it, as we sit here now, would potentially double in size. Wouldn't that be worth it? So for the family to get bigger? So what do we learn from Psalm 51? The heights of God's mercy extend farther than the depths of our sin, which should bring us joy in our salvation. We, we sang Amazing Grace, <clears throat> and one of my fondest memories of that song uh, when I was at uh, a church called Grace Community Church, this little PCA church that met in a coffee shop uh, in downtown Macon, we, we had all kind of people kind of come through. And I don't know if you've ever met an Irish Jew, but there's one that I know of, and his name is Jack. I'm not sure he's an actual Jew, but he would wear the prayer shawl and the yarmulke. And Jack had this, this booming Irish voice, and he could sing. And uh, he was amazing, but he was also crazy. He quit taking medication at some point. Uh, and I'm um, being serious. And, I mean, one of the smartest people we've ever met, but just lost his mind. Spent, lived on the street. Uh, but he would come in our church. He came in wearing a suit and the prayer shawl and the yarmulke. 
and we sang Amazing Grace, and a good friend of mine was, was leading the music, and his name really is Bubba Tootin. I'm not making that up. Uh, and uh, Bubba was, was singing Amazing Grace. He gets to the part when we've been there 10,000 years. I'm not going to sing. I'm not going to do that to you. Jack had gotten up and was heading toward the door, and we hit the when we've been there 10,000 years. He goes, no, billions and billions. <laughs> and he walked out. <laughs> and nobody knew what to do. <laughs> and so Bubba just was like, all right, we'll keep going. I don't know. And so he held it together. But, but, but actually, Jack, for as crazy as he is, I think he got it right. I think he got it right that the joy of our salvation is limitless and it is endless. And what if we could live like that? Not, not going around yelling that stuff out, uh, not taking your medication, but what if we could live knowing all that, that, that it is that God has for us? The, the, the eternal, the, the just lavishness of his grace and his mercy. So that's the heights of God's mercy compared to the depths of our sin. And the second thing is that we should share the joy of our salvation with others who need to be restored. And again, each of you is gifted different. You've got different, um, different relationships. But every one of us, every one of us who knows Christ as Savior has a story worth telling and sharing. So share it. Don't put your light under a bushel. We owe them a debt. And that debt was paid in Christ, and they need to know that. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, we give you thanks that your glory far outshines all of the stuff that we could come up with. We give you thanks that, that this biblical story that, that you have written uh, for us and that you have enfleshed in Christ and that you continue to display in and through your church, that it, it points to you and is our greatest joy. We give you thanks that there is mercy that we can appeal to and that judgment is not swift, but instead patient and kind and long-suffering. May we, may we give praise for that this morning. May we recognize, may we have some inkling of just how patient you've been with each of us as part of our own stories and how you continue to abide in and through the power of the Holy Spirit, and you continue to offer the means of grace despite our brokenness and despite our sin. And God, we give you thanks that we have stories we're sharing. Help us to do that. Loosen our tongues, Lord, in the power of the Spirit. Help us to see the joy of our salvation. Help us to, to long to see our neighbors made family and redeemed as you have so passionately done for us. May we honor and glorify you by sharing the joy of our salvation with others. We pray for these things in Christ's name. Amen.